You can look in your Bible at uh, John's Gospel, chapter 3. We'll look at verses 16 through 21 this morning. And the text is also printed in the bulletin for you. And there are some Bibles available on the back table if you need. John 3, 16 through 21. So a quick recap of uh, where we are right now. We're continuing in a series on John's Gospel. Um, We've had Jesus introduced to us. Uh, We're starting to see the shape of his life and his ministry, and we've reached a really significant uh, conversation between him and Nicodemus. Um, If you have a a Bible with red letters in it, uh, this is where in John's Gospel you see see a lot of red letters. Jesus is starting to talk a lot uh, in this conversation with Nicodemus, starting to teach us a lot. So Nicodemus, uh, um, we learned last week he was a Pharisee, Uh, one commentator translates that and says he's a member of the serious party, very serious, and uh, uh, he's a member of the Jewish Sanhedrin. He's the, it's, that's the high court that combined spiritual and political and judicial functions in uh, Jewish society back then, and it, so he was an important man of standing, great standing, in the community and actually in the nation of Israel. And when Nicodemus came to Jesus by night for a respectful conversation, um, Jesus took him to school. He challenged him deeply and directly about his need for God's mercy. So Jesus challenged Nicodemus. Jesus can make us terribly uncomfortable sometimes. After all, he loves us and he wants what's best for us. Uh, That, of course, is counterintuitive for us. He loves us, so he makes us uncomfortable, terribly uncomfortable because he loves us and wants what's best for us. Don't see how those things connect, not intuitively, anyway, right? Um, Yeah, we need to spend a bit of time talking about that. That's what Jesus does uh, as he encounters Nicodemus, and that's what he's going to do with us this morning. So um, let me pray, then we'll read the scripture. Father, we ask for your help. You have instructed us to ask for your help. You've given the Holy Spirit to us, uh, even to be able to ask for your help as we consider your word. And we ask for your help now um, that you would send the Spirit into our hearts to help us uh, to respond to you with faith rather than unbelief. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus said, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Praise be to you, O Christ. So, let's say, for the sake of argument, 
that you are an alcoholic. Let's say you're an alcoholic, you're destroying your liver through drinking. You know you're in trouble because you've been in a lot of pain and you went to the doctor and you've gotten a diagnosis from the doctor and you've already begun a series of very expensive treatments, but you actually need a liver transplant and, um, and you're not able to afford it. You can't, you're, you're already behind on your medical bills and collectors are calling, but you can't pay, you can't, certainly can't afford the surgery that you need. In fact, you can't even afford your rent anymore because you recently lost your job because of your drinking. Um, the reality of all of it, the reality of all of it is too painful to bear and you can't take it, so you're at the bar making the problem worse by trying to ignore it. Making the problem worse by trying to ignore it. And let's say your older brother comes to take care of you. You're in denial. You're out drowning your fears and your sorrows, but while you're doing that, while you're in the middle of destroying your own life, your brother calls the collectors, he pays all your bills, he settles all your debts, he finds you at the bar, he gets you in the car to drive you home, and he tells you that he's paid all your bills, he's settled all your debts, and actually he's a donor match, and he's going to save your life by giving you the liver that you need. Don't worry, he'll pay for the surgery too, and you can stay with him until you're recovered. And you tell him what? I can manage my own life, thank you very much. You're so condescending, as if I needed your help. I didn't ask for your help. Why do you have to remind me the mess I've gotten myself into? Are you trying to make me feel bad? You're so condemning. Stop pointing out the fact that I've ruined my life. It's unbearable. Go away. This is not an unimaginable response. But we don't respond that way, shouldn't respond that way. I mean, sure, implicit in your brother's help is the fact that you need help. You desperately need help. You need to be saved from yourself and what you've brought upon yourself. Implicit in your brother's help is the fact that you really need it. And, um, and of itself, that, that would just be a devastating criticism to hear that. You need help. You need help. You can't stand the reality. That's why you're drinking. Right? But the main point is that your brother's helping you. That's the main point, right? Your brother's helping you. He's getting you out of this overwhelming mess that you've made of your life. You're going to live. You're not going to be crushed by debt. He's going to help make you whole. And he's taking care of you. You should collapse into him with relief and tears of gratitude. That's an appropriate response, right? That should be the response of everyone who hears the good news. Everyone who encounters Jesus Christ should have this response. Everyone who hears this good news God so loved the world 
that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. But we get hung up on that one little word, perish? What do you mean, perish? Are you implying that I'm going to perish or that I deserve to perish? How dare you make such an implication, an accusation? I don't care that you say you came to save me from perishing. I, I despise you for even mentioning it. <clears throat> when it comes to Jesus Christ and his salvation, your needs, your needs have already become so overwhelming that you ignore them and that you bury them and you pretend them away like, like the alcoholic who goes to the bar because he can't bear the reality of his alcoholism. He makes the problem worse by trying to ignore the problem and you react with hostility toward anyone who reminds you of your problem. Even against the one who came to help you, even against the one who came to save you, you don't have to do that. You don't have to react that way. You don't have to be in angry denial. If you know that someone is going to help you where you need it most, if you know that someone is helping you, that it enables you to face the, the profound dimensions of your need to actually face it, to stop the denial, the angry denial. When Jesus came pointing out the desperate spiritual state of sinners, there were a lot of sinners who wanted to get rid of him, especially those who had successfully convinced themselves that you know, my spiritual state really isn't all that desperate. The denial was complete. But uh, there were a lot of sinners who heard Jesus and collapsed into him with relief and tears of gratitude, the appropriate response to Jesus and his love. Especially those who were very sensitive to the pain and ruin that they've brought upon themselves in their spiritual state. So you look at Nicodemus, <clears throat> And this kind of thing is hard for him to accept. Jesus' love, Jesus' mercy, the implications of that, that a person like Nicodemus would need Jesus' love and his mercy. It's very hard for Nicodemus to accept. He didn't ruin his life through things like drinking or sexual immorality or thievery. He didn't ruin his life in those ways. He ruined his life through self-righteousness which had allowed him to believe that, in fact, he had not ruined his life and therefore didn't need the salvation Jesus offers. When Jesus comes to him, when Jesus comes to Nicodemus in love, because Jesus is the personification of love, when Jesus comes to Nicodemus in love, bringing his salvation, Nicodemus' first response was to recoil and to resist. We saw that last week. <clears throat> and what Jesus is pointing out in our passage this week is that this reaction, this recoiling from Jesus and his love, is itself condemnation, is itself judgment. Let me explain that. Jesus says in verses 18 and 19, whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. This is the essence of it. 
This is the nature of it. This is what judgment and condemnation is. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. So in the person of his son, Jesus Christ, God has inserted himself into our lives, into this world, but into our lives. God has inserted himself in love, in love. And it feels like an unbearable opposition to us, a deep challenge to us. Because God really is love, and we really are not. The, the, this point of absolute conflict, when light pierces darkness, and the darkness doesn't like it, or um, when love collides with anti-love, the frustration that we feel, the discomfort that we feel, when the good and loving Jesus comes to us, that frustration is the judgment. That frustration is the condemnation that stands against us. To be frustrated with a God who is love, that's the meaning of hell. That's the essence of hell. To be frustrated with a God who is love is the essence of hell. Dostoevsky is is one of the quotes in the front of the bulletin. says that hell is the suffering of being unable to love. And I would go a little bit further or define it a little more clearly. Hell is the suffering of being unable to love in the very presence of love personified. It's torturous to be confronted with love when you're unable to love, when you're unable to reciprocate divine love. That's suffering. And that's the suffering of hell. That's the suffering that characterizes hell. It's like a drunk, again, to use that analogy, A drunk who is destroying his life, who has a family that cares for him, family and friends who care for him and do an intervention. It's the greatest love that they could possibly extend to him. And it's also the most painful thing he can imagine. Unbearable or almost unbearable. For them to come toward him in love and to challenge him in his self-destruction that is unbearable. We know what that would feel like. Um, and that's a picture of, of hell that, uh, that we have given to us in the Bible. John sees this, in, uh, not in his gospel that we're looking at, but in the revelation, in the vision that he has, where he says that, uh, that people suffer their torment in the presence of the Lamb. In the presence of the Lamb is where the suffering of hell takes place. Jesus is the lamb. I mean, this is not a fierce and terrifying picture that we're given in the book of Revelation. When, when Jesus is being called, the lambness of, of God is being called attention to in Jesus Christ, he's the lamb because of God's love, because he's willing to give up his life as a sacrifice to restore you, to save you, to heal you. A sacrifice on the cross. Jesus being the Lamb of God is a very good thing. It's it's the demonstration of God's love for us, and it's this Lamb's presence. It's the presence of love personified, divine love personified, that that is actually unbearable to those whose nature is anti-love, self-love, which is no love. The judgment that stands against us 
is the fact that we cannot endure God's love. The judgment that stands against us, the suffering that we endure, the frustration that we have when we, we cannot bear the inescapable reality of God's love, that's, that's hell. That's the judgment. That's the condemnation that stands against us. Raymond Brown is a commentator. He says that the mission of Jesus is not for condemnation, but for salvation. The mission of Jesus is for salvation. Nevertheless, the very presence of Jesus constitutes a judgment, realized eschatology, right? Realized eschatology means the end times now, heaven and hell now. Jesus' very presence constitutes heaven or hell right now. Realized eschatology means that people, when they encounter Jesus Christ, they experience either heaven or hell. Some were attracted to the light of his presence, like moths to a, to a flame. That's, John points that out several times in his gospel. <clears throat> Others scattered to hide from the unbearable exposure of the light. Points that out in our passage. Jesus plus you equals heaven or Jesus plus you equals hell. Depending on whether you receive him or reject him. Largely it just depends on whether you receive his love or whether you can't stand it. People will say, I just can't believe in a God who would judge people, who would condemn people. I can't believe in a God where hell would be a thing with this God. Right? And uh, good old Dean Winchester from the television show Supernatural says, your problem ain't hell, it's you. Your problem ain't hell, it's you. You're the one that can't believe in this God. You need to go to Jesus. You need to go to him for mercy, which is why he came into the world. You need to go to him and, and receive his love. The only way that that's going to happen is through the gracious work of God. As you come to believe that the good news is actually good, that the truth about Jesus Christ and his love is actually good and freeing and life-changing in beautiful ways. <clears throat> Look, the main thing to hold on to is this. The inescapable reality, the reality you cannot escape from, is that God loves you. The mission of Jesus is for our salvation. It says in verse 17, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. So the good and loving Jesus... The good and loving Jesus has come into the world. Ultimately, he's given himself up on the cross to suffer hell for you, to, to move into that position of suffering under, under God's wrath and in some strange, mysterious sense, because of God's love. Jesus entered into that in our place and he destroyed hell from the inside out. He blew it up so that your relationship with God could be restored and you would not suffer hell so that you would experience and receive God's love and reciprocate it. Because God first loved us, we may love him. 
and it would be appropriate for us to receive him, to rest in him, to collapse into him with relief and tears of gratitude. Verse 21, Jesus says, Whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out or worked in God. So we expected Jesus to say, because what he had just said was like, when the light comes into the world, those whose works are evil, they scatter and hide. They don't want to be exposed by the light. They can't bear it. The good light, the love of God, comes into into their lives, but because they do evil, they don't want to be exposed by that. So they scatter, they scurry. So we expect Jesus to say that whoever does what is good, these ones do what is evil, but the one who is good, who does good, right, comes to the light to contrast it with that evil, but that's not what he says. He says, whoever does what is true. Whoever does what is true comes to the light. That is, the one who wants to live in reality comes to Jesus. If you want to live in reality, if you want to live in the truth, then you come to Jesus. You come to his light. You come to his love. Augustine um, saw it that way. One of the early church fathers, he, he said that the confession of evil works. So let's live in reality together. Let's say what is true. Let's live in the light according to the truth of God's word as it reveals <clears throat> reality to us. The confession of evil works is the beginning of good works. Do the truth by making confession. By stepping into the light and saying how it really is. This is what's been going on inside of me, and it's been ugly. I've wanted to hide that from myself. I wanted to deny that about myself, but I can't, and I don't want to anymore. Because to live in your light and to live in your reality, to live in the truth, and therefore to live in your love, is better. Do the truth by making confession. Don't be put off by the fact that Christ's salvation implies that apart from him you'd perish. Don't be put off by the fact that Christ's salvation implies that you're a sinner who desperately needs mercy. Don't get hung up on the implication there. Confess the reality of your spiritual state and go to him for forgiveness and for God's acceptance. That's what he came to give you. That's why he came into the world, to live for you and die for you and rise from the dead for you. God sent him for this very reason, to restore humanity, to fix what's broken in you and in your relationship with God. That's that's good news. That's the love of God. It's good. Submit to it. Even if it hurts a little bit because of what it implies about who you are and what you've done. And give thanks. Give thanks because when you do this, when you do what is true by making confession, when you step into the light and desire to live in the reality of God's love, when you do that, you should give thanks because uh, when you come to Jesus, the very ability to do so is a gift of God. That's what this text says. Doing the truth by making confession is a work that has been carried out or worked by, or really, uh, yeah, worked by God, it says at the end of our passage. Doing the truth 
is a work that has been worked by God when you come to Jesus. So whether, <clears throat> whether you're an alcoholic looking to a bottle to help you escape reality or a parent looking to derive your identity from having created the perfect household with the perfect children or uh, a religious person looking for security in your morality or a kid looking for ultimate acceptance in your peer group. You're looking for life, but you're choosing death in all of these ways. The truth is you've, you've already ruined your life however it was that you ruined it. We've all done it. There's nothing uniquely bad about you. You've ruined your life with God however you've done it, but the deeper truth, the more profound reality is the love of God found in his only son, Jesus Christ, who came to save you from yourself for eternal life with God. Eternal life is not just a quantity thing, right? Uh, lots of life that never runs out is that, but, um, but it's an intrinsic quality of life that's characterized now by restored relationship with God as your father, to know him relationally and intimately that's what eternal life is, and you, you get that through faith in Jesus Christ, and that gift, that truth, that, re, that reality that you may live in, that you are welcome to live in, the, the reality of God's love is for each and every one of us who entrust ourselves to Christ, so please do that. Amen. Let's pray together. <clears throat> Father, we thank you that you sent your Son into the world, that even though... Um, we interpreted a lot of his actions and words as implicitly condemning us, yet it was not for the sake of condemning us, it was for the sake of saving us in ways that we don't like to think about. We have great spiritual need before you. Our relationship with you, apart from Christ, is utterly broken, and yet you have done everything necessary to restore it and to reconcile us to yourself through the gift of your son, through his life and death and resurrection for us. So we entrust ourselves to your son. We believe into his name. We hope to um, grow in our faith because our faith is weak, but what little faith we have, we put it in, in Jesus Christ, who is good, who is true. He is the light of God. He is your love personified. When you have communicated your love to us, you've communicated it through Jesus in every way. And so we, we turn to you and we acknowledge that your love is better than our self-love. Your salvation is better than, um, than our brokenness. We want you, and we pray that you would help us um, to discover more deeply now at, and at this table and as we go through life together with you, we pray that you'd help us to discover more deeply the profound dimensions of your love as seen in Jesus Christ. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.